You see like this tiny, tiny little space they've given me this weekend? No roaming. Some of you know that my, my son is on staff at a church in South Carolina, and it's a, it's a church of 25,000 people. And they have nine campuses, and uh, Adam is a video producer there. And uh, Perry, who's the senior pastor there, has a habit, like I do, of wandering a lot when he's teaching. The way that they accomplish the nine campuses is that they have extremely high-resolution cameras, and they send a signal out live to the other campuses. And so they have these life-size screen. So when the screen comes up at the end of the worship, people who are at the, main, at the, at the satellite campuses think that Perry's actually on platform, okay? So it, it's that real looking. And I've been to some of the campuses, and if you're more than five or six rows back, you can't tell that he's not on platform, and so they have people all the time come up after the services saying, I want, I'd like to talk to Perry. And well, they say, well, no, he's not here. He's at the Anderson campus. And they say, no, what do you mean? He was just standing there, okay? So get this. Because Perry has such a strong habit to roam, they actually put a rug on the stage, and he's not to walk beyond the rug this way or going this way, okay? So one day, Perry's forgetting, and he walks right off the camera, Okay. <laughs> And people are like, oh. <laughs> See, they're thinking rapture. <laughs> Perry's gone. What happened? So that has nothing to do with the teaching. I just thought, you know, they've restricted me. I could push this piano back, give myself some more room. Okay, let's pray and we'll get right into the text. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to hear children who are full of joy lift praise to you. It, it, it resonates within us, God, and we, we watch them move, we watch them dance, and many adults think, I wish I would do that, I wish I was that free in my spirit. But Father, that happens through the work of your Holy Spirit, causing us to be uninhibited. So we, we continue to look now into your word, and we ask that you would help us to be uninhibited. Take away any of the blinders, any of the restraints that we might put on ourselves, and allow us to look into your word the way you intended for us to see it. And that will happen through your Holy Spirit. So God, we ask that you would guide us. Show us what you want us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, show of hands. Who here really loves, I mean you absolutely love, a really good steak dinner? So you thought I was going to say something spiritual, didn't you? Yeah, I see hands, okay. Who here really, really loves college football. Maybe not so much this year, but you like it a lot, okay? So on January 1st, you know where you're going to be. You're going to be watching the bowl games, and maybe you're going to have that steak dinner in front of you, okay? Right, here's one that my wife can identify with. Who here really, really loves the beach? Yeah, yeah, okay. Think Traverse City in July, okay? Just chilling. So, it's not strange or weird at all if you're at Beaners or Starbucks or Culver's to say to some people that might be at the table next to you or around surrounding you to say, I love college football. Or, I love the beach, I can't wait for summer. So why is it weird to say, I love my church kind of awkward, isn't it, right? Because you never heard anybody say that in public. It's rare for someone to say, I love my church with the same enthusiasm they love other things. 
Why is that? Negative emotions, distant memories, what we talked about last week, how church can come across as boring. So nobody wants to be associated. Then they might like their church underneath, but they're not going to say it out in public because it comes across as kind of awkward. See, when something doesn't create a worthy image in our mind, when it doesn't leave that fragrant aroma we talked about last week, it, it leaves the negative impression. But what we're going to look at this morning is the understanding that when the church looks like the church that Jesus intended for it to look like, there's nothing like it on planet Earth that works like the church is supposed to work when it looks like the one that Jesus intended. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, let's go back to where we left off in Acts chapter 2 last week. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 is where we started out. We're going to do just a brief review. While you're turning there, let me remind you of what we looked at last week. We talked about God's top four priorities for his church, and we found those in Acts chapter 2, but I'll remind you by showing you on the screen Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So everything, including this church, Mark Kring didn't create this church. Our elders didn't create this church. Our leadership team didn't create it. God established it. It's his. All things were created by him and for him and through him. So governmental agencies, rulers around the world, everything was created for his purposes. They don't always conform to his purposes, but they are created for his purposes. And so the church is the same thing. So we find that word that's right in the middle of what we looked at last week, the word katidzo, meaning he's a creator who is the original fabricator. He's the one that came up with the design. Original, one of a kind. So when Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, we've got both the architect and the general contractor on the job site, okay? The one who planned it and put it together, the architect who put the plans together, and he's the builder. I will build my church. I also designed it. I know what it's supposed to look like. Where does that come from when he says, I will build my church? It comes from Matthew 16, when Jesus is in a conversation with his disciples about who he is. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Jesus knows that's not who he is. The disciples know that's not who he is. So Jesus said, so who do you guys say that I am? Look with me at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' response to him at that moment was, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's why he went on to say this in verse 18. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. But if you ask the typical person in America who goes to church, why does the church today not look like that? Because it really doesn't look like the church is overpowering the gates of hell. What's going on there? 
Well, last week we talked about a few statistics about why individuals have stepped away from church. We talked about especially 18 to 29-year-olds, why have they bailed? And we talked about frustration and disappointment and that they find it boring. Well, here's a couple more for you. Today, as you worship here, you represent about 18% of the American population. 18% of America is in a church service on any given weekend. Now, you might push back and say, wait, I've seen the news reports. I've seen the statistics in the newspaper. It says that 42% of Americans go to church on a regular basis. Well, the difficulty is you need to define the word regular, okay? And so regular is actually... An American considers himself a regular attender in a church if they're there one out of five Sundays. Isn't that remarkable? So it's really transitioned over a period of time. People no longer say, I have to be there on a weekly basis. They'd say, I'm good with one out of five. Now, those same individuals would say, I don't understand what is going on in American society. It seems to be spiraling downward. What's happening to our country? Here's what's happening. I'm going to tick some people off when I say this. I already know it, so send me your emails. But here's the truth. Little League Baseball has replaced God. People have found alternative distractions. They'll find other things to do on the weekend simply because they find it to be more engaging. So whether it's travel teams with their kids or going Christmas shopping, they're part of that one out of five society because they're just kind of thinking like, Church is optional. I mean, it's, it's there. I'm doing it out of obligation. Maybe somebody in my family guilted me into doing it. But, you know, one out of five, I'm good. Okay? That's what's really going on. People have checked out because it doesn't look like what we talked about last week with learning, loving, worship, and prayer in the way that Jesus intended. So let's go to Acts 2.42 and see why were these people in the first century so in love with their church to the degree that it became literally unstoppable at the cost of their life. Look with me on the screen or in your own Bible. Luke 2.42, or Acts 2.42 says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 46 Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So can can you throw verse 42 back up on the screen for just a minute? Back up one slide. I want you to see those four top items. We underlined them. What are they dedicating themselves to on a continual basis? Teaching, that's the learning component. Fellowship, that's the loving component. Breaking of bread, that's the one we're going to talk about this morning because that's worship. And it may not look like it to you when you first look at it and say, what, what? I'm not sure that breaking of bread is worship. How does that work? Well, let's look at Acts 2.42 very carefully. It says they were continually devoting themselves, persevering, singleness of focus. Their mind was set on these four things, So here's number three, worship. Go to verse 46 again. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. First thing you should notice, day by day. You see, they didn't wait till Sunday, did they? Day by day, 
wasn't a once a week thing. Not that we do church every day of the week here. You totally wear me out. But day by day, they're gathering together. Where are they gathering together? In the temple. Day by day, they're gathering together in the temple. Why? Because that's the only edifice that they had. So all of a sudden, you've got 3,500 to 4,000 people showing up in the Jewish temple courtyard who are now followers of Jesus, who are worshiping him in an Orthodox Jewish environment because they don't have a church building. So they're gathering corporately to praise God for the great things that he's doing among them. So day by day in the temple, and then it says they were breaking bread from house to house. So we're not talking about breaking bread, sitting down and smearing a bunch of peanut butter on a, a loaf of bread. We're talking about this breaking bread. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of bread for communion. So house to house, meaning they were going to house churches. That's all they had. They didn't have buildings like this. So from house to house, worshiping together, taking communion together, breaking the bread together. So we've got big worship corporately in the Jewish synagogue or in the temple. Then they go house to house and worship and do communion together. And what did that lead to? And then it says they were taking their meals together. So they're worshiping together. They're remembering what Jesus did through the breaking of bread. And then they spend time taking meals together. So they're going to Beaners. They're going to Starbucks. They're going to Culver's. They're having coffee together. Because why? They've got this glad, sincere heart. And I promise you, that is when we worship God best. We've got that incredible gladness just spewing out of us because of what we remember that he's done for us and we worship him fully. So what I see right off the top here is that worship is an outflow of who we are in Christ. It's not forced, it's natural. So as I look at the Bible, I see many different forms of worship, multiple forms of worship. Music is one of them, yes? Some of, them, uh, some of you here worship God best when you're in the woods, okay? Some of you worship God best when you're going running. Some of you worship God really well. My wife said this one to me last night. She said, I worship God really well when I'm shopping. <laughs> and some of you ladies can identify with that. She said, especially when I find a really good deal. I'm really, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> really praising. So worship takes place in multiple forms. Some of you worship really well through giving. You visit the offering box to support the work of God in the church, and you worship him, saying, just thank you, God, for what you've done in my life. Here's some to support the work of the church. Some of us worship really well through serving. Children's ministry to Kenya, it doesn't matter. And God will also use this. Here's a new one for you. I bet you've not thought of this before. You worship God when you study his word. Because as you study and you meditate on it and you begin to apply it to your life, that is a form of worship saying, God, look at how you evidenced yourself here. So there's many forms of worship, but the one that we know best is the music form of worship. And because I'm not an expert in that area, I've asked Michael to share platform time with me, okay, to take a few minutes to talk about what does worship look like here at New Hope when we think of music. So we're sharing equal time here because he told me he'd let me sing if I let him preach, okay? All right, so go for it. But equal time then. Equal, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. Just kidding. No, I was just kidding. All right. Uh, wouldn't you all like to see Pastor Mark in the, in the choir? I mean, 
Now your email is really going to blow up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Music. What a gift. Music is an enormous gift. Um, the, the Bible talks about, you know, God made this whole world as an expression of how great he is, of his glory. The Bible speaks of mountains praising and hills and, and valleys. And, and I look at that creation and, and um, I see evidence all over of the way that God made it, the way God designed it, the way God designed, the way God designed you to worship him. And music, I think, is one of those greatest gifts. Um, first of all, because music touches you. And I, I, I don't want to say this too abstract. Physically, when you make a sound, you're touching whoever's hearing it. There is a little transmission of motion. You're hearing my voice right now because inside of your head, your eardrum is vibrating. So it's, it's moving. It's in motion. And that, that speaks to when we all get together and we sing together, the effect of that gets amplified. Again, you know, sound is a waveform. You, ha- you have two people singing, that waveform gets bigger. Three people, that waveform gets bigger. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I just I see that, and I see the mathematical perfection of music as well. Maybe you've heard that rumor going around that people excel in music, have a tendency to also excel in mathematics. Have you heard that? I don't think it's true. But there is a mathematical precision to music that is, that is amazing. There are ways that music moves and works that just seem to tune to the human spirit. There are ways that notes are supposed to go that work, and, and they go the other way, and they don't work. And there's really no explanation for that other than the explanation I hold that God knitted the whole thing together and the whole process together so that we can get together and sing and move each other and touch each other and, and grab the attention of God on his throne in some way that we can't even understand. Um, so worship here at New Hope. I just want to look at two things about what defines it and kind of how, what, help what, what help guides it. And that's what Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, for those of you who might be familiar with the story. Jesus gets into a little theological conversation with a Samaritan woman about worship. And in the middle of the day, his disciples go into town to grab food, and here he is talking to this woman. And he says that God seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. Well, worshiping in truth, that's, that's relatively pretty easy to understand. And I hope that you understand this, too. It's everything that we do here at New Hope. Um, not, just, not just the teaching, but the songs, the scriptures that we say um, has to be cleared by um, you know, what we sing, even what we edify. And here's another step further that I've also found to be a very important component. Even what we imply by what we say needs to be run through the truth of the word of God. This is where it all boils down to in here. And, and, and if it's not popular or it's not cool, eh, this is what God says, and this is, this is how we're going to do it. Now, worshiping in spirit, that's kind of more, that's trickier. Uh, but I'm going to help summarize it, if it can. And that would mean, in practice here at New Hope, worshiping in spirit means no ruts. No worship ruts. We're not going to do that. Um, There is no working toward perfecting some form of worship and then setting it in stone. I have just been, uh, I've seen how it's so detrimental to to different churches that I've been involved with. You know, we work really hard. Oh, this works really great. Let's do that. 
forever. Plant that in the, in the foundation. And then sooner or later, your church becomes too much about defending that form of worship, okay? Um, because if worship, worship becomes a mindless rote activity, then we are no longer pleasing God. Conversely, if, if you define worship solely by the how it makes you feel, that doesn't please God either because that's not worshiping in truth. Both of those sides are, are not accurate. When Jesus said worship in spirit, he wants you to engage your passions, your affections. Um, also, although when Jesus says worship in spirit, he's talking about, he uses the word little s, referring to your spirit. I also want to take a minute just to remind you that God is the object of our worship, but he's also the source. God is the alpha and the omega. He began everything, and everything's on a collision course to an ending of his choosing. So when you worship, you're doing so out of a desire. That desire came from God. The Bible says that nobody can please God. Nobody seeks him. Nobody desires to please him on their own human initiative. And take that as encouragement. Are you curious about God? Do you want to know what he's like? Do you, do you come in and you want to sing? Has something happened in your life this week that is stirring that in you? God is working in your life. That's evidence of that. Worshiping in here is a privilege. Ever thought of that? Think of this. How many worships around how many worship worshipers around the world this morning weren't able to come into a nice comfortable room? Maybe they had to go into some dark basement somewhere. And maybe when they said their prayers, they had to whisper for fear that their neighbor might hear and report it to somebody and they may come knocking on their door. That stuff happens. It happens like now in different parts of the world. Go back. How many, how, you know, Mark, did you, or you are going to mention or mentioned already the idea of, of the amount of oppression that Christianity has endured. We are like in this, this worship setting, all this cool stuff that we have, this is like the cherry on top. This is like the pinnacle. And so I like to make the most out of God. I like to, you know, so we're going to use it to the best we can, to the most of our abilities until the roof flies off this place, I think. I think that's the way we should do it. Um, lastly, having kids, I have four of those little guys. Having kids, hi Caleb, is an exercise in um, taking the- theological concepts and, and turning them to real brief digestible pieces. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that to an obnoxious degree right now and say in. If I had to tell my children, what, there's, there's one thing God wants you to know in the Bible. If there's one commandment that's inherent in the, all of Scripture, it would be this. Glorify God. If I could sum it all up, glorify God. If, there's, if that's the commandment, then I would say the theme is Jesus. Jesus at the beginning, and you see him at the end. Um, so worship here at New Hope, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this last part because I don't want to get it messed up. Um, worship is going to focus on Jesus here at New Hope. Um, and as long as you let me lead it, we will be Jesus-focused. Worship here at New Hope will be gospel-focused. Worship will be about the whole truth of God, but at the center will be the Savior, the cross, and the empty tomb. Uh, gospel-centered worship is what they're doing in heaven, you know. As far as we know from Revelation chapter 4, that's happening right now. And as they're worshiping the King Jesus, if you go back and look in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 4 too, is they're ascribing to him what he did at the cross. They're, they're worshiping him as the lamb. They're, the, the wounds are still visible on his body. So if that's the way they worship in heaven, that's what we're going to do down here. Think about this. We approach, 
we receive, and we are blessed by God through Jesus. The ruler of eternity emptied himself to become a sacrifice to pay for the wrath stored up for you, stored up for me. He suffered betrayal, violence, and a bitter death. All to make you and me and to restore us into a peaceful relationship and to the God of all things. That is the gospel, and that is what all of our worship will focus around. There's nothing more terrible than God's wrath, but there's nothing more joyful than his presence. And when we worship, we get to be ushered. We can literally be in the presence of God when we worship together. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the way that you've moved in and through the people of New Hope Church, the way that you have um, glorified yourself in our lives, in the things that are taught here, in the ministries that happen all over this building. And we ask you to uh, continue to guide us, to continue to strengthen the worship in this place, that everything that we do here uh, will be directed at making the most out of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you put yourself in the first century. You've just become part of this radical movement. No one has ever experienced anything like it on earth. You take the kind of things that Michael was just describing, glorify God through Jesus. And we're disconnected from it in 2012 to understand what that really meant to these people to be radically sold out to exalt Jesus until you think this way. What if we could all transplant ourselves to Islamabad, Pakistan this morning and be asked to exalt God in a public place through Jesus in the same way that we're doing here? See, all of a sudden you start getting that creepy crawly feeling across the back of your neck because you know Islam will not tolerate that. And potentially, someone's going to want to behead you. That's what the first century church is up against. Being thrown into jail, having their income taken away, having their families sold off into slavery. And in that setting, they're told to worship. Worship through music, which is loud. Yet, How do we do that? How do we flesh that out? I promise you, if you listen to this verse closely that I'm about to share with you, your worship life will change forever. How you approach God and how you understand what it means to fully worship as the way the first century church did, your perspective will change. Even if you're a guy who comes in here thinking, man, I'd really just as soon come in at about 11.30 when they start the teaching and not be here for the music part. And, and I know those guys exist. Uh, last night when I said it, I had a whole bunch of women elbowing their husbands, you know, because that's just the way the conversation goes in the car. I'd just soon not be there for the music part. I want to hear the teaching. But okay, so listen to me how God hems the two together. Look with me on the screen at Colossians 3.16, my favorite worship verse of all time. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness into your heart, in your hearts to God. So right away, God's telling us to sing. There's a very high value to him. He says, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But here's what I want to camp on so that you really understand this is the word richly dwell. 
What does that word mean for Christ's words to richly dwell within us? Well, here's the first one. It's in your notes this morning as well. You'll see it on the screen. It's the word plusios. And plusios is extravagant, abundantly rich. Now think of it this way. If if you love to swim, this would be easy for you. Think of swimming, only not in a swimming pool where you've got boundaries, but swimming in a lake where the water completely surrounds you and you're uninhibited. You can go any place you want. That's like this word plusios. It just surrounds you. It's deep. You're dunked right in it. Now here's the next word, richly dwell. The word dwell is enokeo, and it means to inhabit. So as something that you're, you're dwelling in, think of, it, think of it this way. When I inhabit something, I think of my house. I might have you over to sit next to the fire with me. I might serve you a cup of hot chocolate, but eventually you're going to leave because it's my house, okay? You got your house, but in my house, I inhabit it. I dwell in it. So what Paul's telling us here when he writes this, let the word richly dwell within you, he's saying, let it take up residence and be at home in your life. How does that happen? He says that we're told that God's word is to dwell in us. Here's what I was drilled into in Bible college. Always these same three technicality basics. Study, meditate, apply. Study, meditate, apply. Study, meditate, apply. Study, meditate, apply. I mean, every professor constantly pounding it into you. Study God's word, meditate on God's word, and apply God's word. As a result, it becomes a permanent, abiding part of your life and your activity with God. So here's the truth. When the words of God and the movement of God and the activity of God in your life is evidenced on a weekly basis, it becomes palpable. You can taste it. It's in the air because you know his word and you experience it through the course of the week and you see, yeah, that's God moving in my life. It may be something I'm uncomfortable with, but God's moving in my life. When you come together in worship service, it's merely a reflection of what God has done in the previous week. Now, for those of you who love acronyms, I, I just put a real technical way to remember this by using H's in your note, but you'll see it up on the screen as well. Think of it this way. The word dwells within us when we hear it and when we handle it. Second Timothy talks about rightly dividing the word of the truth. How do we handle it when we study it? And when we hide it in our heart, Psalms 119. And here's the fourth one, when we hold it. And that doesn't mean holding it close to you. It's talking about holding forth the word of God, meaning sharing it with other people, putting it right out there. This is what I believe. This is what I hear. This is what I know. This is what I've hidden in my heart. Let me tell you about it. So here's the great mistake that the church has made today and why it becomes boring, especially worship gets tuned out by a lot of guys because they think, this is just so, I don't know, it's just not who I am. Notice everything that we just looked at is through experience. You have to experience it. So here's the mistake. Coming together in church service is not your life with God. That may be a a new flash for many people, but coming to church is not your life with God. It's merely a reflection of your life with God. So when the early church gathered, the first century church, who are being oppressed, who are being tortured, they've learned together, they've loved together, they've worshiped together. 
So naturally, it takes him to this new place of praising God. And that's what verse 47 tells us. That the next thing they did in verse 47 is they're praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, that doesn't say just some of the people. It's talking about the entire population of Jerusalem. So what's going on with praising God? That's prayer. That's the prayer component. Here's my definition of prayer. You're releasing the power of God into every situation. Very simple definition. You're releasing the power of God into every situation. Explain to me how else these people could have endured the oppression of Nero and Domitian, who was using them for nightlights on a stick outside of Rome, who was throwing them to the gladiators for the lions, ripping their income from them, tearing families apart, throwing them into dungeons. How else could they have survived as a community that exploded all over Europe except for the fact that they're falling on their knees and recognizing this is completely out of our control. God must be in this in some way, but I don't understand it. So here's the really difficult thing in America about prayer. Two things. First of all, we are people who are on the clock and I'm as guilty as anybody else. We, we love our time frames, and we have everything scheduled out. And it's very unusual that we schedule prayer into our life because so, we're just really busy people. What does that stem from? Well, that's number two. The second thing that it really stems from is the issue of humility because we're a proud people. And here's what prayer ultimately is. Prayer is recognizing I don't have control over every situation, but he does. And as long as I try and fix it, I'm taking control of it. But when I yield it and offer up to God, I'm saying, God, would you take control of this? That's what's going on in the first century church. Because they've got all these people who are watching them saying, what a bunch of freaks. What's going on here? This new cult that sprung up where they eat the flesh of a dead man and they drink the blood? Because they totally misunderstood it. And that's why Nero started killing them as he called them cannibals. That's what you're seeing here. These individuals have learned together to love together, to worship together, and now they're praying together. What does that look like here at New Hope? I got a note back from an individual who was here in the services last weekend who said that she has personally experienced what it means to be loved the way that Christ intended her to be loved through the church. And I'm gonna share her note with you I got permission from her to do that. Anytime you hear me share a note from someone in the congregation, just know that I asked first. I didn't just presume. But I want you to hear what she had to say about how you are loving on her. Some of you don't even know that you did it. But it'll click with you when you hear this. Mark, I know the purpose of New Hope is to be a biblical community. Learning, loving, worship, and prayer. It's easy to read that. But as I go through one of the most difficult seasons of feeling hopeless and overwhelmed, I have felt our church body come around me and live that out. I want to tell you that our church family is amazing. I have been hugged in services by strangers who have seen me shedding tears. I've gotten texts, phone calls, emails, Facebook messages, and invitations to visit. A group from New Hope, whom I'd never met before, sacrificed a night away from their families and prayed over my home. It was an experience I will never forget, and I was overwhelmed by the love and care from these prayer warriors. The presence of God was invited into my home, and I felt peace return after a long, hard year. 
I have received cards and books, and they always seem to arrive on exactly the day I need it most. Isn't that our God? So she puts, God is so good. I feel the prayers of so many, and God has used those prayers to sustain me on days I am broken. He has kept me from bitterness, anger, and given me a spirit of grace. I can't explain it. It's supernatural. It's the work of God and the power of prayer. That's what it means for a biblical community to be a biblical community. Now, here's the truth. You can't do that kind of thing if you're not in community together because you have to really know a person's needs. And likewise, we have to be willing to share with each other what's going on in our life so that the community can be the community. So it's not by accident that on the back of our welcome cards we have that place for you to write prayer requests in so that the church can be the church and come around you because that's the force that drove the first century church. So how did this complete itself in them, the learning, loving, worship, prayer? Verse 47 tells us exactly. Verse 47 says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yeah, no wonder. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? Everybody's attracted to that. That's a fragrance, a sweet aroma. The numbers are just an indicator. It's just the natural outgrowth of who we are because God's blessing the learning, loving, worship, prayer component. So we ask ourselves this question. What do we want New Hope to be known for? What kind of an aroma in the greater metro area around us? I have a friend who uh, was looking for some property a few years ago, a very, very wealthy individual. You, You could say millionaire, but then you'd need to add hundreds to that, okay? And he had flown to Los Angeles. He was determined to look for a piece of property. He wanted to buy 5,000 acres. And his purpose in doing it was to locate a part of his operation on this new acreage. So he flew to Los Angeles and rented a car, but true to his nature, he didn't think to take a change of clothes with him, okay? So he gets in the rental car and he begins driving cross country. Five days in the car, he ends up in the middle of the country, wearing the same clothes for five days, okay? So he stopped at hotels during the night. He ate fast food. He went through the drive throughs He spilled ketchup and French fries down his shirt. And he comes to the middle of the country, five days unshaven, same clothes, looking a mess, pulls up to a realtor's office because he saw some property out on the interstate that he wanted to buy. Goes into the real estate office and says to the gal at the front desk, hey, I'd like to uh, talk to a realtor here. I saw some property out on the interstate that is of interest to me. Um, Could I have some conversation time? And her response to him was, "Um, have a seat there and we'll get back to you shortly. Two hours later, he's still sitting in the lobby waiting for a realtor to come out because the aroma that was coming from him was not fragrant, okay? He didn't dress to his stature. His his shabby clothing didn't represent who he really was. He failed to dress consistent with his capacity. When we are the church that doesn't look like the church, if we're not really doing the Acts chapter 2 stuff, the learning, loving, worship, prayer, society is going to leave us sitting in the waiting room for two hours. Why? I mean, I have no interest in that. That's not fragrant. That's not an aroma I want to be part of. But when we're the church that Christ intended and it looks like something else that's it's different than anything 
anyone has ever experienced on planet Earth a place where you can learn together, love together, worship together, and pray together and come around each other. Everyone wants to be a part of that. So here's why I end with you this morning. i take you to Paul's writing in Corinthian because I've talked about being a fragrant aroma. Here's where it comes from. We'll end with this, 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I promise you, you have people in your life who have a God-sized hole in their heart this morning and they're trying to find other things to fill it. This morning we put an invitation card in your bulletin little red card that looks just like this, and on the front of it, it says, His Royal Majesty, King Jesus. This is an invitation card for you to use because if you're going to be a fragrant aroma to those who are perishing, you need to help them experience what it looks like to be part of a church that's learning and loving and worshiping and praying together. That's who we are but there's many people who need to hear this message. So over the next two weeks during Christmas, we're gonna begin focusing on this invitation that Jesus has extended as the royal majesty who left heaven and came to earth and presented it out there for us. And it's an invitation like none other. Would you not agree, church? He's invited us to be part of it. So use these invitation cards. There's stacks of them around here. Take them to your places of business. Take them to the places where you eat. Ask them if you can leave them on the counter. There's a little map on the back to show people how to get here so that we can be that fragrant aroma. And those friends of yours who have that hole in their heart can also begin to say, I get it. This is making sense. Okay, so go team, all right? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to look at your word and understand what you called us to. And it is not an easy calling, but you promised that you would work through us if we took advantage of this. So God, we're claiming it. We're asking that you would make yourself known among the greater metro area of Lansing through this church. Do your work, Father. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.